Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour. You can find us online at feministcoffeehour.com, on Twitter at femcoffeepod, or you can send us an email to feministcoffeehour at gmail.com. I'm Elizabeth. And I'm Karen. And today our guest is Diane Morales, an Afro-Latina executive director and former CEO of Phipps Neighborhoods, an organization that fights poverty by providing educational, career readiness, and financial counseling programs. She launched her 2020 bid for mayor of New York City in the fall of 2019 and is running in the Democratic primary. Welcome to Feminist Coffee Hour, Ms. Morales. Thank you so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here. Please call me Diane recording this in mid-October, and we want to be looking forward. It's probably be released after the general election. We have no idea what's going to happen, but no matter what, there is going to be an election for mayor of New York City next year. So the first question we want to ask you is, what made you choose to run for mayor, and what do you hope to accomplish if elected? That's a great question. Just to give you a little bit of background on me, I, you know, as you mentioned, I'm an Afro-Latina. I was, I was born and raised in, in Bed-Stuy. I am a first-generation college graduate, and I'm also the proud single mother of two young adults who are now in college themselves. I'm an educator by training, and I have spent my entire career working to help low-income, marginalized communities get access to opportunity through academic and and economic uh, pathways. I got to the point in my career that no matter how successful I was, there was always, it was sort of like a leaky bucket. There were always so many more people to serve. And you start to actually realize that the problem is bigger, right? And I really wanted to find a way to bring my my lived experiences as a first generation woman of color, single mom, and my professional experiences as a leader of organizations that helped families overcome these structural and systemic barriers. I wanted to figure out how I could bring those two things to bear in such a way so as to create larger scale change for more people. And, you know, the reality of it is that as much as I've always believed that the best way to have impact is to work in community and with community, I think there is something to be said for the, you know, what I've been talking about as the inside outside strategy. We need someone like us who is actually centering and elevating our voices and experiences and working to to sort of change the policies that created the you know, inequities and injustices that we're dealing with now that have been so exposed in, in the last seven months, in particular as in the era of the age of COVID, that can actually really, really bring those voices to the table with a genuine interest in making a long-term difference. And I also think, you know, it's really important for us to do that in such a way that it's someone who is not beholden to any of the status quo or the, you know, the ways of yesterday. And I can be unabashed and unapologetic about that. You know, I don't owe anybody any favors. And, and the, you know, the support that I am building is coming from average New Yorkers who are ready for change. It's not coming from people who are tied to the old system. And so that's what I want to be able to do. I want to, I want to find a way to turn this awful moment of multiple crises into an opportunity for us to radically reimagine New York City and create a new social contract for everybody. Hearing echoes of uh, unbought and unbossed, or unbossed and unbought, I forget the the direction of it, but yeah, um, in uh, your description of your power as an outside candidate. 
Absolutely. I, I think that I think that's right. I mean, I think it gives me the freedom to say things that other people might not be able to say. And I think from a policy perspective, it would certainly give me an opportunity to push things that other people can't push because they may have gotten support from the real estate industry or they may have gotten, you know, support from some other special interest group that whether directly or not does in fact have an impact on the things that people feel free to say and do. I'm not tethered by that in any way at all. And so I think there's something to be said for that moving forward. Absolutely. You have a whole plan for, you so tell it, divest from the police, reinvest in people. And, and it's on your website and people should go read it. But I wanted to know, how do you think Mayor de Blasio failed in police reform? And, and how do you think you could do it better? It's one of those things that he failed profoundly <laughs> and in every way. I, I, you know, I do think about this a lot. Like you can't help but wonder what has kept him from acting in a way, I mean, I didn't see the video. I, that's become sort of like his, you know, standing line in response to all of the different assaults on, on groups or individuals in New York City, and particularly over the last six months. And the total lack of accountability in terms of the NYPD, it's been just been a failure from beginning to end and from top to bottom. I, the reality of it is it, it, that it feels a little bit like he works for them as opposed to them working for him and him having the authority to hold them accountable and hire and fire the, the commissioner and, and kind of say, you know, no, you cannot cooperate with ICE. You know, all of these things that it, it and just- they still it, don't like him. It's so weird. <laughs> Exactly. It's generally like a head scratcher, right? Like, why are you not doing these things? And also, to your point, like, why don't they like you? Because you're not doing anything to impinge upon their activities that are, you know, really akin to gang behavior, you know, these days. It's been a, a total colossal failure. I can't even begin to speculate as to the reasons why. Yeah. And I think it's particularly disappointing considering how he came in you know, um, how he got votes, you know, kind of with his like black wife, you know, and maybe, maybe it's not time for the man with a black wife. Maybe it's, it's, it's time for a black woman <laughs> herself to be the one at the seat of power. Yeah. I mean, I, I think that's right. I think it is the, it is time. You know, one of the things I talk about a lot in terms of my platform is the idea of centering and elevating women of color and communities that have been historically left behind. I think, I mean, women of color who are like always at the bottom, right? Just always at the bottom, no matter what you're talking about. And, you know, if we find a way to elevate the floor so that, you know, the folks who are most left behind and, and most harmed by the current systems and structures can actually do well, everybody's going to benefit. Everybody's going to benefit because if, if there's anything we've learned over the last seven months is that, you know, when you talk about the essential workers and the heroes, they are women and they are mostly women of color that, can, you know, kept the city running during this period of time and that, you know, made it possible for, for those of us who are lucky enough to work from home, to work from home, or that took care of our, our sick and dying. And so, you know, there is something to be said for learning from and following the lead of those who have literally put their lives on the line in order for the rest of us to survive. Something we talked about on this show for I think the five years we've been doing it, something that we frequently joked about in exasperation is our frustration with the inability of Mayor de Blasio to work with Andrew Cuomo and get things done. And it seems like they should be on the same page. Do you have any relationship with Andrew Cuomo? Do you have a plan to work with him or anyone else who should be governor when you're mayor? 
first of all, you're spot on in terms of the ego contest, to put it, I think, diplomatically, that the two of them have engaged in over the course you're, of... You're allowed to be crass on this can podcast. Can I say that? The, you can. The pissing can, contest? Yes. You're allowed yeah. to say pissing contest. You're allowed to say dick measuring contest. Like, we can, you can say okay. all that here. All right. Yeah. Love it. Love it. Um, <laughs> you know, the sort of ego-driven decision-making or clashes between the two of them are, are absolutely ridiculous. I just want to sort of state that as if anybody needs to needs it to be explicitly stated. So I think there's two things, right? Is One is, is, yes, absolutely, I think that removing one of those egos from the mix could make a significant difference in terms of being able to work with the state. I, you know, one of the things I like to talk about is that actually, statistically speaking, women legislators uh, are more effective at getting legislation passed. It is just like a statistical reality. And I think that has something to do with, you know, our ability to negotiate, our ability to compromise, our ability to put other people above our own egos and just in general, like lead differently. So that's the first thing I would say about working with the state. But the second thing I think is when the state is not doing right by us, by New York City, like right now, it's really, really important to have somebody who can really stand up to that and really be a strong, rational advocate for the city in a way that, again, doesn't put ego first and that puts actually what's best for the city and the residents of New York City first in terms of, of really trying to get stuff done. And I don't, I have not seen that in those interactions. And I think that the, the most unfortunate part about that is that the average New Yorker is paying the price. It's not actually doing anything to elevate de Blasio's status, right? That they're in these constant, you know, constant conflicts and it's not benefiting the city. So, you know, I I think part of the thing that would be key and and central to me as mayor is, is being able to navigate those relationships in a much more effective way. And I think that I have that kind of his, you know, history and experience in terms of being able to figure out ways to get to the best end result for the people that I represent. You mentioned things that the state is not doing right by us right now. Um, are there things in mid-October of 2020 that you would advocate for right now for New York City from a state executive? I mean, I think one of the things, you know, we're, we're living this right now in mid-2020 and um, with all of the challenges in Borough Park, with the population there and in terms of the spiking numbers and the protests and that have been taking place. And I would tie that, I would trace that back directly to the mixed messaging and the lack of clarity around the rollout of all of that, right? The, the idea that the state would put out one map and the city would put out another and you overlap them and they're, you know, they're, they don't share the same boundaries, that the boundaries aren't crystal clear, that there wasn't the engagement of community leaders in helping to, you know, really, really understand and explain kind of what the challenges were and the buy-in to getting them to help, right, become stakeholders in getting the message out to the community so that there's buy-in, right? The other thing I know is, you know, I, I said this the other day, I was on, I was on um, New York One and I said, as an executive, as someone who has led organizations for a really long time, I know what it means to make a decision, an unpopular decision or a tough decision, right? I also know how you do that in such a way that even the people who might not agree with you or might not like it understand it enough 
that they begrudgingly follow along. There is a way to do that. And that means people really need to understand what you're doing and why you're doing it. Again, even if they don't agree with it, people would much rather that than the chaos and the confusion of ambiguity because that plays on, it plays on fears, it plays on insecurity, and it results in the kind of thing that we are experiencing right now. I find that that interesting because I think that that's a, a huge task to tackle with how politicized, partisanized, uh, and misinformed people are becoming around mask use. Mm-hmm. And so that seems like a really difficult task. And and clearly it, it hasn't made better by the, hasn't been made better by the lack of organization uh, from our executives. I'm really anxious to see how that resolves itself with all this ill will already. Yeah. I mean, there really has to be a, I think a massive community education plan that gets rolled out. Right. I, I mean, there are some extremes in that community, right. That, that exist. And there are people who, you know, in all communities that feel like, you know, that are just not buying into the mask thing. But I I do think it is the city leadership's responsibility to educate in a way that, that we can get to as many people as we can. And then to, you know, find a way to, to manage those who are not willing to cooperate in such a way that it doesn't jeopardize public health. It is a public health and public safety issue. Right? And so there's some things that are non-negotiable there, whether you agree with it or not, you know, one should not be allowed to put the lives of other people in danger. Do you have kind of a, a concept for community engagement? Every community has leaders of, of all different kinds, right? Um, you have religious leaders, you have, you know, block association leaders, you have school leaders, you have civic associations, and you have, a, you know, the informal leaders, right? Like sometimes it's just the guy that hangs out outside the bodega, and I think, you know, having liaisons and, and, and the mayor's office has this, you know, liaisons that are supposed to be on the ground in different communities and, you know, bringing those people together, bringing those people to the table and mapping out with them in partnership with them. Okay, what is this? What does this massive community education campaign look like? And what role do you play in that? right? And who are the people that you're going to reach out to, right? Who are the constituents that you're going to sort of assume some responsibility for, but like breaking it down, right? Into subgroups um, and having people assume some responsibility for doing that, right? I'm going to do this at the, you know, at the religious institution. I'm going to do this at the civic meeting. I'm going to do this at the community board meeting. I'm going to do this at the brotherhood of solidarity meeting. I'm totally making that up. But, you know, if you give people a sense of ownership of something, they take it more seriously than if you just sort of try to do a top-down thing, right? And so that kind of ownership and buy-in, I think, is really important if you want to be successful in something like this. And, and I don't get the sense that that has been a strategy that's been employed. In a different topic, um, we wanted to ask you in general about your plan for housing and affordable housing. Mm-hmm. And just before you know, you can talk about that, just two like really specific little questions uh, that I had was if you supported a pedicure tax for people who have their second home here, but don't live here. And then also, this is just like a personal issue of mine, but I, I know it applies to lots of people around the city where um, according to the state, private homes have a cap on the property tax every year and co-ops do not. So I'm in Northeast Queens and lots of co-ops have had their taxes go up double digits every year. So, um, you know, we've been trying to organize around this and I never thought I'd be, you know, organizing for lower taxes, but it just seems like 
the state squeezing the middle class and if the mayor's not going to look out for us like who is so if you could just speak to affordable housing pedicure tax and discrepancies in property taxes between like middle class and and yeah so a couple different things you know absolutely support the the pedicure tax you know in terms of advocating at the state level for that i think that's absolutely the right thing to do there there're too many and there're way too many instances where people are to the extreme example of you know the oligarchs from other countries who like park their money in in a unit here and sort of that's a great sort of essentially tax free way of like having an investment and not having to pay taxes on those on those dollars. I also think, you know, one of the things to 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 the property tax question, there's this neat, neat idea called the land value tax and I am admittedly a sort of student of that idea, but it it is the idea that rather than taxing the value of the property, you actually tax the value of the land and that is uh expected to increase significantly the revenue for the city, right? So that would mean that those tall towers um would actually pay a lot more um than they're currently paying in property taxes. And so I think those are those are some interesting things that we are exploring and looking probably by the time this uh airs we'll be in a different place in terms of adopting that as a position. You know, I think we need to think about addressing the the current housing crisis, right? What as opposed to kicking the can down the road the way it's been done in terms of the eviction moratorium, we need you know more rent stabilization, rent control, need to develop quality public housing. I think, you know, right now we we should be looking at rezoning or zoning differently. We should be looking at um how we might convert commercial properties, how we might uh take over all the vacant properties that people are talking about uh that that exist so that we can actually house the homeless. You know, the idea that there are more lux- vacant luxury apartments There are enough vacant luxury apartments in New York City right now to house every single homeless person is embarrassing. It's really embarrassing. We really should be leading the country and the world in all of these innovative practices and in really taking care of New York City residents in a way that we're just failing on miserably right now. You know, I'm a I'm a proponent of housing for all. I would definitely be exercising uh, you know, eminent domain as a means to take over properties that uh you know could be used or converted to housing for for both the you know the the homeless and the low income because i think you know affordable is different from you know housing for everybody and and affordable means different things to different people everybody should have a a right to an access to a home i see them as all connected honestly i see affordable housing connected to the homeless crisis connected to kind of my middle class tax issue i see housing justice is is all connected and this is where your background really comes in handy because you know i work in mental health and providing somebody with a, a domicile is not the same thing as creating housing or stable housing for people Absolutely. And I I do have you're right about my background. I have been responsible for the cre- creation of quite a bit of of social housing, um supportive housing for for folks with um with mental illness, with histories of substance abuse, you know, for just homeless families and for for young people, for, you know, LGBTQ youth um who are homeless um and young people aging out of foster care in particular as well. So those are definitely all things that i think we should have more of right social housing supportive housing cooperative housing um those those things we we should be adopting wholeheartedly and and increasing significantly so i'll say um you know i was the first mayoral candidate to call for defunding the police 
And you know, part of that is that I don't believe that policing equals public safety. And I don't believe that police are trained actually in their defense, which I don't do often. I don't believe that they're trained to handle like 80 to 90% of the calls that they um, respond to, right? Because most of those calls are about, you know, homeless issues, mental health issues, substance abuse issues. So I've actually called for the creation of a community first response department that would actually be staffed with personnel who are trained in responding to those kinds of issues, right? Who have mental health backgrounds, who are medics, who are able to help, you know, with substance abuse so that there's not only safe intervention of the challenges when they take place, but also that people are being connected to resources and services and supports so that, you know, we we can try to address the recidivism issue. And that connects to the housing conversation we were just having, right? Connecting people to services, connecting them to a roof over their head. Police are not equipped to do that. And that's, they're not inclined to do that either. And yet they have a, you know, a really bloated budget. So if you think about what it would take to remove the person, if you want one word to calculate the percentage of, of time and effort and dollars associated with those responses, you know, police responses to those other incidents and move that over and create a separate department, I think that would make a huge difference in New York City. It also would make a huge difference in really creating um, safer communities because right now communities that are most highly policed are the ones that actually report feeling the least safe. So that's one thing. I think for teachers in the age of COVID, uh, my response would have been totally different than anything we've done so far. First of all, I would have closed schools sooner. Second of all, I would have um, taken advantage of that opportunity to, one, allow teachers to really spend some time training and thinking about what virtual learning looks like, right, and what they need. Two, make sure that during that period of time, we are deploying the technological infrastructure to all of the communities and households that don't have access to it right now, right, rather than continuing to further the equity challenges uh, because we're, we, you know, we sort of end up at the last minute reverting to virtual learning. And there's so many households that don't have laptops or don't have access to Wi-Fi, those kinds of things. I felt like at the beginning of this, the beginning of COVID, there was such an effort on the part of our politicians to downplay it, which is ironically exactly what the president said he was doing, right? Trying to downplay it, right? And, and trying to sort of, I think there was a fear of panic, But people, to my point about sort of managing communities and managing teams, people prefer to have the truth and be part of figuring out the solution way more than they, you know, than this sort of like, first of all, lies. And second of all, just like this ambiguity around it, right? Like one day, no, we're not doing that. Oh yeah, we're going to do that. Oh yeah, we're going to shut down everything, right? So like all of that kind of uncertainty, I think, did not serve the city well. Had we just shut down, you know what, we're going to be, we're going to take extra precautions. This may not be necessary, but we're going to do it now because we think the preventative measure is the right thing to do. And if we, you know, if things level off in a couple of weeks, then we'll resume activity gradually. But we're just, we're going to err on the side of caution. I think there's something to be said for that. And people would have appreciated that. It might have been uncomfortable, certainly, but I think we've already experienced a lot of you know discomfort without any of the preparation. So in any event, I think that would have enabled teachers to be at home, to be safe, to have the time to plan, and to know what was coming next. And I think that all of those things make a critical difference in in you know the anxiety and the stress that people are living with during these uncertain times. The last thing I'll say about this 
is that this is the thing that really, really bugs me the most. I think that we missed an opportunity here with the virtual learning. I think we could have totally experimented with desegregating classrooms because virtual learning um, basically sheds all of the geographic and district boundaries that you know, our schools and our students have been bound to that you know, also further perpetuate the inequities. There's no reason why like the best teacher on the Upper East Side couldn't also have been teaching some kids from Brownsville, right? If we had thought about that and just really taken the time to be planful about that, we could have had like the great experiment during this really challenging time where, you know, potentially we could have made strides in desegregating classrooms. And that, you know, given how intractable that issue has been in our schools and how much that correlates to sort of long-term outcomes for low-income students of color, I think that that is a really, that's a missed opportunity that makes me feel kind of sad. I think that's really meaningful. And I'm, I'm kind of just feeling the disappointment in this for the first time hearing you say that. And so I am really sitting with that right now. Yeah. I, so I'm an educator by training, which is part of why that was one of the, I mean, you know, I've been sort of, I feel like I've been sort of jumping up and down and screaming about this since probably June, because I was just like, this is, we could do this, we, you know, and just kind of frustrated that we didn't really take, we didn't really look at kind of all the things that are wrong in our education system and, and think like, as hard as this is, what opportunities could this afford us to address some of those long-term intractable challenges? Yeah, that's what... A mayor needs to do this, what like a leader needs to do. Like my son was in 3K, now he's in pre-K, like his classes went online in the spring and just so many people were just scrambling to just get through every day. It's, it's hard to think about the bigger problems, but you know, you're right. Um, I had another question from a teacher, which would be like, who's your ideal candidate for a chancellor or what qualities would that, that person have? You know, I think it's really important that it be someone who understands <laughs> New York and the New York public school system, right? As much as someone from the outside could be really, really great, like there's something to be said for understanding the sort of politics with a small p of New York and also how complex our system is, right? How it looks different to get your kid into an elementary school than it might to get into a middle school or a high school. Um, I think those things are, are um, important to understand. I think um, someone who respects and acknowledges and, you know, community enough to really figure out a meaningful way to partner with community folks in identifying changes and moving through changes and that kind of thing would be really, really important to me. I think that the pendulum has swung too far the other way from community control to like this sort of like totally top-down approach that the Department of Education takes right now. You know, I think there are parents who are really, really struggling, obviously. I'm not saying anything that's like earth shattering here. But I, I also think that, you know, to my, my point about the virtual learning thing, I think that there were folks, there are plenty of folks who would have embraced this opportunity to like, okay, this is awful and this is really hard, but like, what can we try to do differently? And how do we do that together? And how do we, you know, going back to my earlier point about the more ownership people feel about things, the more accountability they feel about things, the more they're invested in the success in the long run, right? And so, like, I think we've swung too far the other way, and, and that's problematic. And then, you know, I think it's important that they be not just an educator, I think, and not, and not to belittle educator, but like a, a leader, a real leader, someone who can stand with conviction and execute even when there might be some negative blowback, right? We have so many areas in New York City where like there's a small but loud 
mighty group of folks, you know, who have power and resources and, and can make themselves seem so much bigger and, you know, louder than they actually are and are not reflective of the bell curve of New York City. That takes a particular type of leader, a particular type of like courage and integrity, I think, um, and commitment that uh, would be really important to me. So if you find that person, or if you know who that is, let me know. <laughs> Absolutely. We'll give them your number. <laughs> um, so we're going to kind of move to another area, transportation. And so one of our listeners asked about whether you would support municipal control of the MTA as it applies to New York cities. And uh, basically, if you would support Speaker Johnson's proposal and if you could talk a little bit about your answer. Yeah, I, I figured that that was Corey's um, plan they were referring to. I, you know, t- to be honest, I don't know the, enough of the details of Corey's plan to like do that question justice. I think there's a lot of issues around the financing of all of that that I would want to sort of dig deeper into. I will say, though, that in terms of transportation, if we've learned anything over the last seven months, I think it should be uh, the value of open streets, the value of creating more bicycle paths across the city, the value of, you know, uh, really doing as much as possible to lessen the, the car traffic in the city, increase, you know, those roadways, express buses, I think, you know, connecting the boroughs in a different kind of way, right, rather than the way it is now, right, where the poor woman who, you know, lives in Jamaica, who's a home health aide in the Bronx, has to travel for an hour and a half to get there. We should focus on the outer boroughs and making them more sort of connected and and accessible to each other, rather than like, everybody has to go through the city to get from point A to point B. I like have to like cut you off with my support there because I went (laughs) from Brooklyn to a CUNY in Queens where I it took me an hour and a half each way for years years I like I thought it would be faster if I took the Long Island Railroad to Jamaica to this express bus but it didn't matter what I took there was no way to make it take less than half an hour and a half each way that's that's crazy that's just crazy like no one should have to transit yeah there's no bus I can take to Brooklyn I wish I could take a bus or a train Right. But yeah. I have to drive if I want to go from Queens to Brooklyn. It's crazy. Yeah. Yeah. yeah so you're, you're on the right podcast to fetch about that. <laughs> awesome. So another uh, question, how will you help small businesses recover from the economic and human impact of COVID-19? I mean, I think we need to do that in all sorts of different ways, right? I think we need to find ways to decrease commercial rent so that they're not struggling on that front. I think we need to provide, you know, grants and incentives and low to no interest loans so that businesses can get back on their feet. I think we should be investing in in our infrastructure and and generating businesses and jobs that way. I'm a big fan of worker-owned cooperatives as well. And the idea of the ownership being shared among those people that are doing the the brunt of the work and moving towards an, a, a model of, we talk about it like the pre-distribution of dollars rather than the redistribution of dollars, right? Where, you know, all of the money goes to the top 1% and then we hope that they redistribute it somehow or another amongst those uh, that are doing the work to make it possible for them to be the 1%. How do we, you know, move towards an economic model, again, through the, you know, worker-owned cooperatives being one mechanism such that the money actually starts 
and stays at the ground level where the work is being done. You know, one of the things too in our recovery that we should be thinking about is, you know, the idea of, of creating communities and community hubs where small businesses can provide services to that immediate community. And how do we incentivize that economic, you know, stimulation so that it's local, it's, you know, homegrown and, and home sort of attended, right, by the people in the community and that that's who they're serving. I think if we did that really deliberately in, in sort of neighborhoods and pockets across the city, you know, the idea of kind of bringing Main Street back into communities, I, I think, is a way to support and stimulate the, the growth and the recovery of small businesses. It just reminds me of something a Green Party candidate said a long time ago about five, what do you say, 5,000 neighborhoods, Bill Talon or something like that. That was his like motto. And oh, really? The long time, yeah, I think so. Like okay. he, they totaled up the number of neighborhoods in New York City or something like that. Yeah, that, that sounds really good. We were looking at your website and can you tell us more about the guaranteed minimum income plan? Not quite a plan yet. It's an aspiration and a goal. I think, you know, given our current economic status, it's it's going to take a minute before we can do that. I do believe strongly in the idea of everybody being able to live in dignity and being able to provide a, a minimum income to people that um, enables them to do so in New York City. And I, you know, one of the things I talk about with the with the budget, right, is the idea that there's so much waste in the New York City budget right now. I know that we are, you know, in dire economic straits. And also, there is so much more that we could do with the money that we do have effectively to actually support little people, right? The tax incentives and the tax write-offs that we provide to large corporations, the bailouts that we provide to large corporations, whether that be in real estate or in other industries, just that needs to stop. Those are, you know, industries that aren't, aren't giving back a fraction of what they're getting out of the city. You know, when I talk about, you know, defunding the police and, you know, is talking about divesting and reinvesting in other services. So I think that there are ways, you know, for us to gradually move towards the idea of a guaranteed minimum income for everybody while addressing the challenges that we're facing right now. And, you know, the other thing is like there are bloated contracts that the city has with, you know, high white glove consulting firms that should actually be providing jobs to, you know, New Yorkers that are struggling right now. So, you know, I think there's a, the guaranteed minimum income goes hand in hand with sort of addressing some of the current budget challenges. But I, I, I do think it's going to be a challenge, but I don't think it's impossible. I just think that our budget needs to reflect our values in a whole different kind of way. A similar t- tactic towards um, universal health care you were talking about? You're talking about like the city level or supporting it for the state? Supporting it for the state, for sure. I would definitely like to move towards the idea of rather than these large sort of health and hospitals, corporations, sort of buildings, community-based care, local care in community clinics that is accessible, that provides not just health care, but mental health services and substance abuse supports and some of the other things that we talked about before. But again, you know, connecting it to that main street idea, something that people could could walk to or access relatively easily. There's something that speaks it volumes about, you know, when you walk into a space and it's well-maintained and it's bright and it's, you know, clean, uh, it communicates a message about how you're valued. Right. It communicates something. It makes you feel like you want to be there and like you're welcome there. When you walk into a space that is dirty and dingy and dark, it says something too. Right. And so I think the quality of those kinds of things are also really important. And I'm not sure that all of our sort of big 
hospitals are doing, you know, providing that care in, in the way or that feeling, right, in the way that they should be. You know, and if we localize healthcare, then those hospitals become the places where only serious medical issues are being addressed. And you should be able to go locally, you know, somewhere to, I don't know, if you stub your toe or whatever, you shouldn't have to actually go to a major hospital for that. So like a community urgent care and mobile crisis area? Yeah. I mean, you know, right now it's being done for profit in so many ways, right? I'm not sure that I really understand why we can't do that with a lens to, you know, sort of public accessibility and and availability with public dollars. There's a lot we can learn from those models without the sort of profit-making angle. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, I think New York City in the past, I don't know, decade or two has made a lot of progress towards, I guess, reversing our impacts on climate change, becoming a cleaner and greener city. And I just wanted to know, like, your plans to continue that and if you support congestion pricing. Yes, and yes. You know, one of the things I'm most interested in is is um, accelerating sort of the development of green infrastructure, the job creation that comes with that. And uh, I would say, you know, through the lens of environmental justice, right, focusing on and prioritizing the communities that have been most harmed by our awful practices historically, you know, I worked in the South Bronx for a decade. I can tell you that, you know, the asthma rates in that sort of part of the city are, are higher than anywhere else. And it's environmentally caused asthma. And the relationship between that and missed days of school is ridiculous. And so, I, you know, I'd want to start in the communities that we've harmed the most. Mm-hmm. Miscarriages um, and healthy pregnancies, yeah. Absolutely. Absolutely. So I would prioritize starting in those in those communities, um, generating jobs for people in those communities, cleaning up in those communities and rolling out from there. Karen, got anything? I just have like all kinds of ideas around (laughs) stuff like this, the ways in which kind of, I think some of your policies could tie together, just like, you know, my frustration with like these big glass box buildings that are not efficient rather than restoring this beautiful old architecture and then the new building has like limited liability for only a few years whereas these old buildings were really built to last forever you know Um, and in New York we have so many opportunities you know these thick brick or cinder walls that are good for keeping heat in you know so ways in which housing justice and green jobs you know, can work together is restoring an older building to be more green rather than building a whole new building and tearing an old, beautiful stalwart down. And if we're going to give tax incentives or tax breaks to anybody, it should be to the small building owner that invests in that kind of infrastructure rather than the large real estate development corporations that really don't need extra money. Diane Morales, do you have anything to add? Uh, no, I mean, I guess the only thing that I would say is, you know, to echo kind of what where we started, which is that, you know, I truly believe that I am the people's candidate and that I am a reflection of the sort of interests and concerns and challenges that the average New Yorker has to address and that it is time. We are, you know, we're living at an unprecedented time in our history. There is a, I think, a moral imperative for us to move forward in a new and different way that centers and elevates all the communities that we've historically left behind. And, and that if we are able to do that, if we're able to commit and have the courage to move in a new and different direction, which can sometimes feel uncomfortable because it's not familiar, 
that I think that we it is possible for us to transform our city and to really become the true leader in this country and in the world that New York has always talked about being and aspired to be. One of the most important thing for people to take away from this conversation is that as a grassroots sort of insurgent, non-traditional candidate, it is really important for us to qualify for the public matching funds program. That is the thing that is going to be the game changer for our campaign and allow us to compete with the machine party candidates. And so that means that every contribution that we get from a New Yorker between $10 and $250 gets matched eight to one. So $250 actually yields an additional $2,000 for the campaign. And that is what's going to make it possible for us to stay in this race. We have until December to meet the second sort of threshold to qualify. The first was at least a thousand New York City uh, residents donating. And it's worth noting that we crushed every other mayoral campaign on that fact by more than three to one. So, you know, I think that speaks to how our message is resonating with New Yorkers. But the second threshold is that we have to raise a minimum of $250,000 from New Yorkers. And doing that through small donations means we need that many more small donations. So I would encourage anyone who thought anything I had to say was interesting or worth repeating or worth other people knowing about to consider supporting our campaign. Thank you very much. Thank you so much for um, taking the time to talk to us today. And then I believe that your website is diane.nyc. It is. It is diane, D-I-A-N-N-E dot N-Y-C. And our social media handle is diane, the number four, N-Y-C across all platforms. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at Miss Cherry Pie, P-I like the number pie. And you can find me at uh, Karen. Thank you so much for coming on. It was really great talking to you. Thank you both for having me. It was a pleasure to meet you and great talking to you too. Yeah, really looking forward to seeing where your campaign is headed. You've been listening to the Feminist Coffee Hour podcast, tackling political rumors from the feminist outer boroughs of New York City. If you like our podcast, please support us at our Patreon, which you can find at www.patreon.com slash feminist coffee hour, or, you know, do a Google for Patreon and feminist coffee hour. Our patrons get early releases of episodes, plus other cool perks at higher levels. If you can't support us financially, you can always give us a five-star rating on iTunes and write us a review as it helps the algorithm know we're there and that people like us, like you. Our intro and outro music is Making It Hard by Bridget Ellsworth, and you can find her music on SoundCloud.